Good morning. We'll start with a question that I want to tell you is really the, the whole point of today's message from Deuteronomy. Uh, and then we're going to set the question aside and come back to it at the end. And this is the question. As a New Testament Christian, what place does God's law have in our lives? And, and when I say God's law, meaning in particular the Ten Commandments. So at what place does the law of God have in my life as a New Testament believer? So let's put that up on the shelf, and then we'll listen to Deuteronomy 30 and a sermon on that and come back and answer it at the end. Last Thursday night, I was at our Thursday night Bible study in Gerald, Texas. We're hoping to start a church there, and we have uh, two or three families that get together. And it just so happens almost someone in every family is an educator, one of them is Allie Schmidt. Her husband teaches at our Lutheran school in Liberty Hill, but she teaches in Gerald at the public school, and she teaches third grade. And she was telling us in our, in our chit-chat before the Bible study that in teaching the third graders how to read a story, she used her hand and she said there's five things about a story that she wants everyone to remember, and she learned this from her training just this summer, getting ready for public school third grade. So she said... Your thumb represents the characters. You want to ask yourself, what are the main characters? Your index finger is what is the setting to the story. And then your, your middle finger, what is the conflict? Adults might see the subliminal there. The ring finger, what are the events? It holds your wedding ring. What are the events in the story? And then finally, the pinky is what's the conclusion to the story? So be looking for all of that, she said. And I thought, what a neat, simple way. And it does end up being just about what we always do as pastors, teachers, preachers when we introduce a Bible story to you for your thinking during a sermon. So let's just real quickly run through that for Deuteronomy. Fifth book of the Bible, the main character, Moses, and the other main character, the entire nation of Israel. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, which tells you something about the setting. Moses is now... 120 years old, and he's going to die very, very soon. God has told him, your time is up. You don't get to go to the promised land. Joshua will take them in. The setting is they are on the east side of the Jordan River. They've been through 40 years together in the wandering in the wilderness. And in the setting, God has, there have been some great events. God rescued them using 10 plagues, got them out of Egypt, down in North Africa. God put up with them and fed them manna and quail and other things throughout 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. The older generation is all passed away. Now the younger ones are the older ones, the younger ones that left Egypt. And they, God has, has uh, told Moses, because he lost his temper at a, at a place where they needed water, you're not going, these are all events, you're go, not going to the promised land. And Moses loves these people. And Moses has been given a divine love for them, and a divine role is to keep these people close to God, and he's about to leave. He's been the lightning rod between God and the people, along with his brother Aaron, who was the high priest, for a really long time. And now he is going to be taken out of the equation. So what he does is he tells the whole story I just told in the first four or five chapters of Deuteronomy. He writes them down. Then he tells them this, the, what laws were given to him on Mount Sinai down at the beginning of the 40-year wandering 
including the Ten Commandments. All of this is in the book of Deuteronomy. And chapter 30 is only a couple chapters from the end, but it's really at the end of the story. So that conclusion, the pinky, is really chapter 30, 31, 32, 33 of the book of Deuteronomy. So this is like Moses, what we have in front of us is like Moses' sermon conclusion after he gave them the law he had received from Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all the ceremonial laws, religious laws for the Jews. And Moses is leaving. The law of God is huge in the life of an Israelite. Even the ceremonial laws were moral law. Now today, in the New Testament era, the Ten Commandments are the only laws that are the moral law. The ceremonial laws have passed away at the coming of Christ. Remember the question we put up on the shelf. So here's Moses talking to the people, and we're learning that God has set it up for all people that we would have a life that you could define in worldly terms as successful, but in godly terms as well. So listen to Moses. So this will be where, it's, in, it's on page 9 of your folder, it'll be on the screen. Shouting, no PA system, it's, his words are being passed along among the tribes. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command to you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess, setting, promised land, Israel. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A really good devotional pattern for you might be to sit down later today with everything turned off, you football watchers, NFL's not till next week. You got time. And just read chapter 32, 30, or 30 through 33 in whole in their entirety. You hear the emotional pressure in Moses' heart? He's having to let go, but he doesn't want to let go because he knows they are a stiff-necked people. He's been with them while they've complained. They've already practiced idolatry with the golden calf. They've gotten into immorality with the Moabites, right, just, just in that you know, a few weeks earlier. He's, he knows they're so wayward. He's given them the perfect law of God, and he's begging them, choose life. God has set it up for you that if you will follow him, he will bless you. If you don't follow him, he will certainly punish And we ask, well, what is this about? He will bless you if you obey him. How is that not 
what we are known to say is called work righteousness. Is this the ways of God? Is it actually true that you can choose life and choose to do good and you will be blessed because you do good? I thought that's work righteousness. What's that about? This is where growing in your wisdom and the whole knowledge of the Bible and God's Word is so important, and that's why we're here on Sunday morning also, to grow in the wisdom of the Word of God. So I want, I want to help you with an illustration. Remember I had a school teacher in the opening illustration? We have school teachers here in the room, and we've all been a part of that education. We have it in our home the same way. Here's the illustration. The teacher sets up the classroom at the first of the year, spends about the first week or two spending most of their time on procedure. This is how we line up. This is how we raise our hand if we're going to speak. This is how we keep our, our body in control at our desk or our table spot because we don't want to disturb our neighbor. This is where the backpacks go. This is where, uh, when, when you turn in an assignment, I want your name at the top. I want, I would, you know, you got all these procedures, right? And... A teacher is saying, I'm giving you the pattern for how to get along and how to be a blessing and be blessed and to work together with the system. I'm giving you something that's defined. I'm showing you where the boundaries are. I'm helping you have a successful year as a group and as individuals in the group as we go along through life together. The teacher is doing all of that rulemaking because the teacher has a heart that wants those dear children to succeed. The teacher is actually acting, if she's, or he is acting according to God's motive, is acting in love. And, and the teacher wants everything to be, go well, and these are all the things that are part of life. That they're part of a classroom, they're part of a family, they're part of a church, they're part of driving on the road and following the rules so that we can all get there safely. It's actually the law is a blessing, not a curse. And if you keep the law, you will experience the blessing that the law brings. Like you won't have a fine for speeding or a big bill for an accident, right? Or you won't get in trouble at school and have to miss 15 minutes of your 30-minute recess. You'll be blessed by keeping the law. You'll also have the favor of the teacher who recognized that you respected her or his leadership. And so you'll have a relationship that's growing in trust between you, which is also a blessing. And there are a thousand blessings. I'm just mentioning a few to make sure we all get the point, right? So the law is a blessing in the context of a gracious teacher's room. You see, God had rescued them from Egypt. He had provided for them in the wilderness. He had chosen them out of all of the nations. And he was working a plan to bring from them a savior for the whole world. God was all about grace. And, and he was a, a gracious God. And when, one time when Moses, before this speech that we just read, said, God, I don't understand you. God said, get on the cliff. And God revealed himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the what? Passionate. Gracious, God, slow to anger, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You see, the God who set up the house that has the law in it is the gracious God who made us all and is sending a Savior to redeem us. And he's the one that says, in my classroom, there are some rules. And this is the way life was designed to go. But the relationship that we have with God isn't based on the law. The relationship's based on his gracious choice. 
And that's what is happening in the book of Deuteronomy as his prophet begs the people to choose God's ways because they trust God, that they see him as their life. They recognize he's their gracious God who saved them. Keep the law. You want to make God happy? Keep the law. That's how you make him happy. I can think of lots of problems with that. I bet you can too, but there's two big ones if we go to that slide. Uh, the first one I'll call the Job syndrome. Go to the next slide. The Job syndrome. If you look in the book of Job, here's a guy who kept the law of God better than all of his contemporaries. Job, remember? When he was complaining to God in his misery of suffering, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not lust a, 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 on a woman. I did that personally. It's not in God's law to do that, but I made a covenant with my eyes that I wouldn't do that. He set boundaries up for himself out of love for God. And you know what? For many, many years, Job experienced great blessing, and Job and his friends all thought, man, he must be living right. And Job felt that way. I'm living right, and therefore I'm blessed. And he was blessed more than all of his contemporaries. And the devil saw that, and he said to God, well, you've padded his life. That's why he's that way. You've given him all these blessings. No wonder he says God is good because you've blessed him so much. And then God said, well, you could take away all of his blessings. And then you could take away his health. He won't curse me because Job has a life. The Lord is his life relationship with me. Remember the passage that Moses said, the Lord is your life. Job believes I'm his life even if I take away all my blessings. So you can go ahead, devil. You just can't kill him. That's what the devil did. Now Job and his friends have a problem. Job's like the best dude on, on the block, and he's got the worst life. That doesn't work if you think the, you keep God's law, and therefore you must, you're going to be blessed. You must be living right if you're blessed. So his friends come, and they go, Job, you've got a secret sin. All this time we thought you were good, but you've got secret sins. You've got something going on between you and God, and that's why he's dumped on you. They don't know this deal between God and the devil. Well, we all have the Job syndrome up and down in much smaller ways than Job usually, where we're challenged with this idea that if you're, you think the law is a way to please God and therefore get his blessings, it just doesn't work because many people are really, really good, right? Remember Billy Joel's song? What's the title that I'm thinking of? Yeah, Only the Good Die Young. And his cynicism, he is nailing that to the wall saying there's no way because most of the world get this you're not the world you're God's people most of the world thinks that the message of the church is everything that Job's friends thought it was that the church is full of laws and if you keep the laws you're the good people that's why when they don't come to church and don't come they go if I ever come to your church what will happen it'll burn down you know you don't know about people like me you don't want people like me in your church right so they think that the message of the church is, well, it's all full of all the goodness and all the commands and how to be a goody two-shoes Christian, and then God's happy with you and you're blessed, and that's the message of the church. And that's what the pundits and the Saturday Night Lives and all the others are, are, are making jokes about, thinking that being Christians is that. It's all about the law. When it's not, it's some, about something bigger called the gospel. And Job... Believe the gospel in the middle of his story, right? He said, in the end, I'll stand upon the earth and my eyes will behold him and not another. How my heart yearns within me, my redeemer. 
lives. The second syndrome is the flesh syndrome, I call it. That is, even if it were true that you could keep the law and please God and therefore get blessed, you and I know we don't really keep it well enough. And secretly in our heart, we've got all that doubt because we should, because we know ourselves, right? My biggest problem is my sin, and I know that, and, I, and the fact that I know it makes me the least comfortable about my life than any of your criticisms. I'm, I've got my, I know my sin. You're the same way if you're honest. Your flesh is weak. You were born a sinner from your parents. You got an inherent self-centeredness. You got it. I got it. We all got it. And so it leads us to be susceptible to temptation and falling. So we can sit there like God's people, like Israel, and listen to Moses say, if you choose all to keep the Ten Commandments and do all these things, you'll be blessed. And we can go, I know how I've broken that one. I know how I've broken that one. I can't do it. I can't do it. So Paul would later write in Romans 8, the law was weak because it had to deal with the flesh. It was weakened because all it could work with is sinful flesh. You want a, a great meditation on this? Romans 7, 8, and 9. I'm, yeah, Romans 6, 7, and 8, actually. 6, 7, and 8. And in chapter 8, it says, What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, this is admittedly a very elementary lesson today that we're all getting, but it's really good to bring us back when we get a text like this to what I'm saying. Because we have, in our sinfulness, we have amnesia about the wonderful beauty of the gospel. And we tend to like go to church, say yes to Jesus, but then we have all these laws and we're all caught up in a law-oriented way of living. And we're trying to measure whether God is good or if he's really there, whether he tends to bless those who do good or not. We get cynical like Billy Joel. So it's good for us to have this. So I want you to picture Adam and Eve fell into sin. They're hiding. They got the fig leaves over them. God comes to the garden, chapter 3 of Genesis, right? And he says, Adam, where are you? He goes, I'm over here. I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you sinned by eating from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Adam says, it's the woman you gave me. She made me do it. The woman says, well, the devil made me do it. And then God says, well, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to give you ten more commandments. Is that what he said? Oh. That wouldn't have fixed anything, right? So you can get lost in Deuteronomy. You can read this passage. If you don't read it in context of the whole Bible, with Genesis 3 on one hand and the New Testament on the other, you miss the gospel, right? He didn't come in there and give them more commandments. Nor does the church bless people mostly by giving them more commandments. They give them Jesus. So God comes in the garden and what does he say? I will raise up the seed of the woman, devil, and this person will crush your head. What you used to talk to Eve, to tell her God was bad and couldn't be trusted. And he came. Paul would later write, Paul was a Jew steeped in Moses' law, right? Paul would later write, And he became a Christian. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Genesis 3, born under the law, Moses' law, to redeem those 
who are under the law, that we might receive an adoption as sons. An adoption. What child does anything at all to earn an adoption? Nothing, right? We were adopted as sons. Because he gave us his mercy and grace. He gave us life as his children around the law. It came at a price. He had to be perfect, and he had to die as a perfect sacrifice for us, and he did. He was making everything right between us and God. He gave us grace, and we, it, it's the good news, and it's the gospel. So what place does the law have? Well, I've already been saying, the law is a good thing in God's classroom because it's what makes him happy and it's the right way that he wants us to live to be a blessing to other people. So if we do our dead level best to keep the law, we're going to be blessed just in keeping it, generally speaking, and we're going to bless others. And that is a good thing. Go against it and you've got God on your back. But more importantly, the law was given to get down in print something from God that you would know you aren't going to earn his favor. You're going to need some grace. So the law is a mirror. It shows you your sin and your need. And then Jesus is so much more beautiful. Now just for a minute, put your Christian hat on. With our present struggle in American society to keep thoughts about God's law regarding gender and sexuality, what is the devil up to? If he can make it something you celebrate when you deviate from God's will, then you don't have a need for a savior in that regard. Because you know that's actually something you celebrate about yourself, right? No, the law is given in all realms, in complaining, in sexuality, in thievery, in coveting, in murder, in all realms. The law is given to be a mirror. But what the devil has successfully gotten us to do in our culture is to take one major commandment, the sixth one, and say, that's really not the law. That's not what he got. He actually, God actually blesses different ways around that law. He can do whatever long as you yourself feel complete in thinking it. And it completely erases that idea that, is, that, that we have this flesh and we're weakened by the flesh. I'm telling you spiritual insight based on the Word of God and how to filter through all of the rhetoric that you hear so your heart will stay close to God and let the mirror be the mirror. A perfect image of you need a Savior in regard to all Ten Commandments. Everybody does. Nobody is singled out as worse or better, which leads me to the choice of Luke 15 that Pastor Herring read. Our Lord Jesus Christ made up a story. Luke 15. These aren't even real people, but the prodigal son story is so realistic that we, we feel like they're real people. They're not real people. They were made up. Jesus picks a rascal and a goody two-shoes. And, and the father loves the rascal incomprehensible to the rascal. 
The rascal cannot believe how much his father loves him. Father, I'm not worthy of your love. I have wasted half the inheritance. I've taken it away. I've done all these bad things. Oh, just come. Let's kill the fattened calf. My son is backing and put my ring on him. Give him my robe. He is back. He is 100% restored to me. He's my son. I love him. My love is bigger than his sin. Older brother can't get it. I have worked all these years to be good. I thought it was about you do good and you get blessed. Well, he can do bad and get blessed like that? Not fair! And the father should be incensed that his son has been working for him like an employee, right? He should, like, dress him down, we'd say in Texas. <laughs> Give you know, just really get on to him. And he goes, my son, everything I have is yours. I love you. Your brother is restored. And you are, in, as far as I'm concerned, you're restored to me. As far as I'm concerned, I love you. My love is much bigger than your little rules that you think you've been keeping. All along, you didn't have to slave for me because all along I've loved you like I love him. I, I'm just here to love both of you 100%. I'm your dad. That's what I do. You see, God's love is bigger than the sin, but it's also bigger than the righteousness. Remember that question we put on the shelf? What place does the law have in a Christian's life? Let's take it down. The law is a mirror a curb and a guide, and in that way, it's a tremendous blessing to us. As a mirror, it leads us to know our Savior. As a curb, it keeps us from otherwise worse behavior that would make a mess out of our lives and others. And as a guide, it tells us how, what we can do to please God. Men feel this more than women in my anecdotal experience in marriage. There are very few women that walk around saying, Happy husband, happy life. For one, it doesn't rhyme. But happy wife, happy life, that rhymes. And men are la smiling and some are afraid to laugh. But women will say, I'm not going to dump this husband. I spent 30 years training him to this point. Right? He finally got 10 of the things that make me happy. Right? Here's what I'm saying. Wives are the boss of their castle, usually, the house, right? And there's rules about where the pans go in the kitchen. And the kitchen is like the holy of holies of the house, right? So, and where the plates go and whether or not the milk is, you know, never, you know the drill. So a husband who loves his wife wants to please his wife. And that's why he keeps the rules. Because he loves her, right? So what place does the Ten Commandments have in your life? You love God, don't you? And he says, don't do that. Right? And you say, well, even if I don't figure it out logically, I won't, I'll work against doing that just because I want to please you. Not because I think I'm going to be earning your salvation or your love. or whatever. I just love you for loving me, and I, I love your law because 
And if you want to know what that looks like, read Psalm 119. It's this beautiful, complete, alphabetically sequenced, longest chapter in the Bible. The kids just said, I'm not reading that. And uh, of, of him saying how much he loves God's law. Because he knew God's grace and his love. So now you know, with the law and the gospel, once again, how God has set your life up to be what he calls happy and successful. Amen.